This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello and welcome to episode 25 of the weekly UK true crime podcast. I'm Adam. Today's episode takes us to Cornwall, the most southwestern county in the UK. Firstly, apologies for the technical issues, which meant that last week's episode, which was meant to be the extended episode, cut off mid-sentence about six minutes from the end. Although based on some of the feedback I've received, this was a blessed relief for some, but I appreciate that some of you would actually like to listen to the end. Rather than issue a new addition to my 80 million global listeners, I've opened the link at Patreon to allow you to hear the end, free of charge that is. So please head to patreon.com forward slash UK True Crime to catch the ending. Talking of Patreon, a huge thank you to my new supporters this week, Elizabeth Chechi, I hope I've got your name there right, Kate Melb, Ashley Shannon and Emma LB. I really appreciate your support. As I said, it's been a week of mixed reviews, but there were some positive ones on iTunes this week, which as always is much appreciated. One from Emma Flavel in Kent did make me smile. Hi Emma. Along with some other reviewers, Emma mentioned that she enjoyed the historical music references. So just for you Emma, here we go, back to November 2003. I think it's fair to say that the UK charts weren't going through a golden era. Number one was Mandy by Westlife, a Barry Manilow cover. I bet that's on all your playlists, right? Yeah, me too. If I see you at a bar, by the way, buy me a beer, take a seat and ask me about the time I shared a Vegas lift with Barry Manilow. Yup, I've got all the big anecdotes, all the big stories, all the big stars. Talking of music legends, Gareth Gates was number one in the US with his cover of Spirit in the Sky. No doubt a cover version that will be enjoyed for generations to come. In desperation for a decent piece of music, I even checked out the Australian charts where Beautiful by Christina Aguilera was top of the pile. Who knows, maybe panpipes could be the way ahead. In other news, that month, England stuffed Australia in the final of the Rugby World Cup. OK, a minor exaggeration as we scrape through 2017, but when you live in England, you can take whatever you can get. Later that month in tennis, Australia beat Spain to win the Davis Cup. On a more serious note, the Iraq war was underway. A week later, on November the 12th, 2003, in Nasiriyah, Iraq, at least 23 people, among them the first Italian casualties of this Iraq war, were killed in a suicide bomb attack on an Italian police base. So on to today's case. In November 2003, Detective Superintendent Stuart Newbury was just a few months away from retirement, having completed more than 30 years with Devon and Cornwall Police. He enjoyed living in the area, and why wouldn't you? With beautiful beaches, stunning cliffs, the rolling surf of the north coast and the major resorts like Newquay. Living there, he didn't have to face the frustration of those of us elsewhere in the UK visiting Cornwall as we sit behind a car towing a caravan just below the speed limit on a single lane road with no overtaking spots and you feel the will to live gently evaporating. Have you been there? That four hour journey suddenly clicks up to six and seven. 
Cornwall's a place where even today the pace of life is more gentle and where locals actually smile, say hello, they're actually friendly to you. It's great, it's a lovely place. On the 6th of November 2003, the morning after bonfire night, a passing bus driver called the police at 6.30am after driving past Perch Garage on the A39, a few miles outside the small town of Wadebridge, which is close to the Wimble showground. What Detective Superintendent Newbury didn't know was that this call would spark an inquiry so complicated that as the senior investigating officer, he was going to have to postpone his retirement by 12 months. Perch Garage had been owned by Graham Fisher, who was age 60, and his 53-year-old wife Carol for a number of years. And they lived at Fairfield Cottage, which was a small anonymous bungalow just next door to their garage. They'd recently celebrated their silver wedding anniversary. You would not have guessed it from where they lived, but Carol and Graham Fisher were a wealthy couple who owned nearly 50 acres of nearby land. Together they were worth over £2 million. When she died, Graham's mum, who owned a number of properties, left an estate of £1.4 million, while her husband left 858000 The pair did not display their wealth in any aspect of their lives. For example, Graham still drove an e-registered Peugeot 205, which even then was, what, 10 years old? Many locals saw them as loners or introverted. They certainly liked to keep themselves to themselves and seemed perfectly content living their lives. Oh, if only Piers Morgan could do the same. Graham was certainly a little more quirky. His garage didn't resemble any you see at big service stations on the motorways or major roads, but it was sleepy and maybe a little tatty. Graham grew up in an era where customers were served their petrol by the owners, and he carried this on serving customers petrol himself. It was also not unknown for Graham to refuse to serve customers he did not like the look of. John and Cecilia Dunford, who lived next door to the Fishers, said they were not an easy couple to get to know. Cecilia said, Graham Fisher was always quiet and withdrawn, not what you describe as a sociable sort of chap. The couple, who had no children, had not seen their family for several years but the very close circle of friends that they did speak with and have a lot to do with said they were a devoted pair. One of those friends was Irene Brewster, who described them as a lovely couple. She said that Carol had an infectious laugh and always managed to see the funny side of things. But they were very private people, she said. We were never invited into their bungalow. I think they were just really happy in their own company. In fact, the reality was that nobody was invited into their home, and they never answered the door to any callers. On arriving at the bungalow, Detective Superintendent Newbury's team found a scene of almost unimaginable horror. Somebody had smashed a living room window by throwing a planter through it, and the back door was also smashed. Carol Fisher was lying dead in the garden, with shotgun wounds to her back and a horribly fractured skull. Graham Fisher was in the hallway next to an open safe, also with shotgun and head wounds. The living room and hallway were scattered with shotgun pellets. It appeared that Graham had been shot first and a wounded Carol had then been marched around the house to help in a search to find something of value. Blood-stained fingerprints showed that the bedroom drawers had been searched and had the safe. It appeared that Carol was first shot in the hand, probably she tried to dial 999 for help, and left a trail of blood through their bungalow before being shot in the back and the neck as she tried to flee down the garden path. The brutality of the murders shocked even experienced police officers. 
The couple had been shot three times before being bludgeoned with a sledgehammer, dying from the massive head injuries inflicted. When the bodies were discovered, the television was still on and a pie in the oven was burnt to a crisp. Police were initially hampered by the state of the couple's bungalow, which was filled with bags of clutter and what appeared to be a lifetime of belongings. The scene itself was very difficult. There was a lot of stuff in the place and it looked as though the fishers had never thrown anything out, said Newbury. They just seemed to store everything. There were some rooms she couldn't actually get to because of the sheer bulk in the way. To help establish what may have been stolen and also a possible motive for the murder, officers emptied the bungalow and removed the contents to a hangar at a nearby RAF site where every item was painstakingly sifted and sorted. As the police pursued their investigation, they discovered that the couple liked to follow a daily routine. Every day Carol would return to the bungalow from the garage at 6pm to prepare dinner for her husband. He would then come home by 7pm so they could watch the popular British soap Emmerdale together on the TV over dinner. On the 5th of November 2003, records showed that the garage pumps were turned off at 6.30pm. Both Graham and Carol spoke to their friend Irene Brewster between 6.41 and 6.50 and she was probably the last person to speak to them before they were murdered. She said there was absolutely nothing in their manner to suggest any hint of what was to follow, saying they seemed perfectly relaxed and obviously had no idea what might happen to them. The till was closed at 6.55pm and police photographs show that Carol had almost finished preparing the evening meal. There was one plate of food in the oven, which is on a low setting, and another uncooked on the draining board. The door of the microwave is open. It's got two dials, one set to cook and the other to two minutes, suggesting that one dish had not yet been heated. The television was still on, supposedly ready for Emmerdale, and places were set in the living room for two people. It was fireworks night, and as people living in the UK will know, there are random fireworks set off all over the place at any time. Two reliable witnesses traced by the police reported hearing loud bangs at about 7pm in the vicinity of Perch Cottage. But there were no fireworks set off at the cottage or nearby. This strongly suggests that this was gunshot and the couple were murdered at about 7pm on the 5th of November. As police investigations continued, the fact that Carolyn Graham never invited anybody into the house became significant. The person, or people, who had murdered Graham and Carol would have left forensic traces which would have revealed their identity. Every spot in the house was tested for prints and DNA, but none were found. Although a blow to the investigation, the police continued to search for forensic material. They erected a huge blackout tent over the house to conduct infrared examination of every speck of material. Again, this turned up nothing. Despite months of careful work by scientists, not a single forensic clue was found as to who had killed the fishers. It would appear that whoever was responsible for the murder had covered their trail in an expert fashion. With no fingerprints or forensic evidence found at the scene, and no witnesses to what had happened, the police needed a break, and quickly. The level of savagery used against the couple suggested that the murders must have been personal, yet there was no evidence to show that the fishers knew their killers. At a press conference in December, Detective Superintendent Newbury shared his view that the killings were planned and personal. Just what was it in the past of Carol and Graham that could have motivated someone to want them dead? He appealed for anyone who could shed light 
on what could be the motivation behind their murder or the murderers. Behind the scenes of the investigation, out of the glare of publicity, officers were asking other questions about motive and the actions of the murderer or murderers. If this was a robbery gone wrong, why did the supposed robbers leave over £3,000 in cash at the scene with over £2,000 in plain view in and around the safe, which had also been searched? The second mystery concerned Graham Fisher's valuable antique guns. The bodies of the guns were left behind, but the stocks were found shortly after the murders, stuck in a hedge on a country lane, about a mile from the scene. Why was this? Police said robbery was the obvious motive, but the painstaking investigation, with over 200 officers at its peak, wasn't able to establish exactly what, if anything, was taken. Newbury said that if robbery had been the motive, it was a bungled one, and several target items which should have been taken were not. We don't know what was stolen, said Newbury. We do know what was left, but we don't know what was there to begin with. During the course of the prolonged investigation, a series of arrests were made across the country with the aid of other police forces. Later in December, a traveller from Kent was arrested for an unconnected crime. He was remanded in nearby Exeter Prison. It was there he became the first suspect for the murders, as prison staff at Exeter reported he'd allegedly confessed to a fellow prisoner. But it quickly became clear that his confession was a false one. I was listening to an episode of the consistently excellent Generation Y the other day, when I think about four or five people all confessed to the same crime one after another. And even the eventual perpetrator was astonished why they'd all do this. It's really common to do this for a whole variety of motives. But just before Christmas 2003, the police were alerted to the presence of brothers Lee and Robert Firkins, who were committing serious crimes in Somerset, Devon and Cornwall. On the 23rd of December, they arrested the brothers for robbery and assault, and both were remanded in custody in prison in Worcestershire. It was at this point that the brothers became the prime suspects for the Fisher murders. Both were shotgun users, with family members nearby, and they'd also been in Cornwall on the night of the Fisher murders. Lee had also robbed a nearby garage in Cornwall on the 19th of December, using a shotgun. The police had now changed their mind from it being a personal attack. They now believe the couple were murdered by Robert and Lee Firkin in what was a bungled robbery. So who were Robert and Lee Firkin? The brothers were born in Colchester, Essex, Robert in 1972 and Lee two years later. They weren't lucky with birth. As children, they were victims of appalling violence and neglect. Neither boy completed their schooling, which, as we know, means that their future life prospects were appallingly damaged. By the age of just 13, Lee was homeless and living on the streets of London. We can only imagine what he must have gone through there. As adults, their lives were chaotic and deeply troubled. Robert is a placid character, but Lee was an altogether much tougher case. He had a violent streak which brought him to police attention on several occasions. Both became involved in using and selling drugs, and during 2003, they allegedly fell foul of some big-time criminals in London. Their response was to move with their families to Western Supermare in Somerset, where their father lived. Here they set up home and they had relatives living in Cornwall, not far from Weybridge, who they visited regularly. One of their visits took place on the 5th of November 2003, the evening of the Weybridge murders. Lee and Robert Firkins were violent robbers and they were more than willing to use firearms. But they were careless 
and they always left lots of forensic evidence for every crime they committed. Fingerprints, footprints, fibres, DNA. They denied the killings, saying that although undeniably violent, their violence was safe for other young men. They weren't interested in attacking helpless elder people. While denying the murders, the brothers did admit a number of other offences during a spree of violence in 2003. In November, Robert attacked three men in a pub near St Austell in Cornwall, spraying two of ammonia. Two days later, he and his brother went to Clacton in Essex and caused actual bodily harm to another man while in possession of a shotgun. And on December the 19th, Lee Firkins fired a shotgun during a masked robbery on a service station in Cornwall. The very next day, Robert used a knife to slash the face of a man at his home in St Dennis in Cornwall. He was also squirted with ammonia before he was bound with tape and dumped in the countryside. The next day, the brothers robbed the B&Q hardware store in Taunton, Somerset, dropping all but 600 of their £1,800 haul. After the murders of the Fishers, two shotguns were found on a beach where the brothers had buried them. But there was no forensic evidence connecting them with the Fisher murders. All of the cars which the Firkin brothers had been using in the months before November the 5th, 2003, were traced by police. But again, not one contained any forensic material linking them to the murder. The police were certain they'd found the killers, but they'd no clear evidence to prove their case. They'd already arrested and released the brothers twice due to this lack of evidence. It was not until May 2004 that the police secured the breakthrough they needed with another cell confession from a serving prisoner in Exeter Prison. The Fisher's murder was about to be featured on the BBC programme Crime Watch and the witness, who was granted lifelong anonymity, said that Robert Firkins bragged to him, Watch Crime Watch and you'll see my work. He told police that the brothers had been high on crack when they killed the Fishers, and it was this evidence that gave police the confidence they needed to charge the brothers with murder. In October 2005, Lee and Robert Firkin appeared extra Crown Court, charged with the murder of Graham and Carol Fisher on the 5th of November 2003. The brothers pleaded not guilty. Their defence was that they had travelled together to visit their relatives, had tried to obtain cannabis via one relative, and then had gone to a pub while their relatives sought unsuccessfully to obtain the drugs for them. They said they had not been anywhere near the Fisher's home or garage. However, Evidence was called by the prosecution from the use of a mobile phone which the brothers had been carrying that evening. The evidence showed that the phone had been used up to 6.50pm that evening and was then silent until 8.46pm when a three-minute call was received from Robert's girlfriend. The prosecution submitted that telephone mast evidence, particularly that relating to the 8.46pm call, was consistent with it being received in a car moving away from the murder scene and so it was impossible for it to have been received at the public house, as the brothers had maintained. Moreover, the evidence of the girlfriend at trial was that Robert had been in a tearful and emotional state during the call, although he denied this. In addition to this evidence, the prosecution relied on what it considered to be the improbability of the brothers' account of travelling so far as they did just to buy a few pounds worth of cannabis. It also relied on the fact that the brothers claimed to have left the pub without finding out if their relative had successfully obtained the drug. The prosecution further relied on the evidence of two other witnesses 
who had heard conversations between the brothers. One testified that Robert had said to Lee, what are we going to do about this Weybridge thing? The other testified that Robert had spoken about Weybridge. And finally, the prosecution were allowed to rely on the other robberies and one of the assaults which the two brothers had committed as evidence of their propensity to commit robbery and use sudden and exceptional violence. Most controversially, at trial, against Robert only, the prosecution led additional evidence from three prisoners who alleged that, while in prison on remand before the trial, Robert had either admitted or had made incriminating remarks regarding the shootings. The most significant of the three witnesses was a police informant, Witness Zed, who testified that Robert had admitted the shootings. The second of the three witnesses testified that Robert had returned to his cell after being interviewed by the police, worried about the phone evidence. The third testified he'd overheard Robert tell someone that Lee was going to take the rap for the shootings and that he, Robert, had done them. The brothers' defence strongly argued that Witness Zed's evidence was unreliable and what he was really motivated by was a £10,000 reward detailed on the BBC programme Crime Watch. In January 2006, the jury delivered their unanimous verdict. Both were guilty and sentenced to spend at least 26 years in prison. The judge, Mr Justice Owen, said, They're extremely violent and dangerous men, and in addition to the murders of Carol and Graham Fisher, which were the most horrific killings, carried out of extreme and gratuitous violence, they also carried out other serious crimes across the West Country. The killings were a double murder, carried out in the course of a robbery using firearms, and were the most horrific killings, which involved brutal and sadistic violence, particularly in the treatment of Carol Fisher. There are no mitigating features. The weapons they used were double-barrelled shotguns, the weapon of choice of a professional criminal. After the hearing, Carol's brother, Nigel, said, I was hoping for a longer sentence, and life would mean life. Nine months after the murders, a private funeral was held at St Issy in Cornwall for Graham and Carol Fisher, with mourners asked to make a donation to a Cornish cat rescue centre. The perch garage was later demolished, and in its place was built a Hawksfield site as it is today. It's an art gallery, kitchen centre, a nursery and a cafe. But as is so often in cases we examine in this podcast, this is not the end. In December 2008, the brothers' appeal was heard. Much of the appeal focused on the evidence of the key prosecution witness, referred to as Witness X, who shared a cell with Robert Firkins before the brothers' trial, claiming he'd confessed to the murders. They attacked Witness X's testimony as inherently unreliable, describing him as a career criminal. They also cited a letter penned by the witness to tabloid newspaper News of the World in December 2006, threatening to discredit the Devon and Cornwall police with dates and venues of meetings with various ranking officers and lists of entitlements and wrongdoing. The solicitors working for the brothers claim that this casts further doubt on the trial evidence. The Firkins legal team said that the convictions were clearly unsafe, but their appeals were dismissed. Delivering judgment on the appeal, Lord Justice Hughes said that although it was possible the evidence of the witness contained embroidery, there was more evidence to back it up. He said, There are a great many criticisms to be made of Witness X. His character was bad. He was a criminal, largely committing acquisitive offences, but also the drug habit. 
there had been significant violence towards a former girlfriend. In prison, there were repeated reports of drug dealing and taxing of other prisoners. He was undoubtedly a dishonest man, and he was demonstrated to have lied a number of points in his evidence when these and other aspects of his history were put to him. But the judge said there was a wealth of other evidence which supported the prosecution case that the brothers were the killers. We are quite satisfied that the case did not depend wholly upon Witness X. On the contrary, the other evidence in the case was potentially highly significant support, he said. Speaking after the Court of Appeal decision, Detective Superintendent Mark Inor, a senior investigating officer in the case, said that the judges had supported the prosecution evidence against the Firkins. We had no forensic evidence to follow up, so it proved to be a very long investigation where we had to build up intelligence to gather evidence over many months to put a strong case for a jury. Old-fashioned police work, really. The jury were unanimous in their verdict at the time, and the highest judges in the land have gone through all the issues raised and were happy with every element they have seen. We are happy it has come to a conclusion, and there is an ending for the family. Carol Fisher's brother, Nigel, said any doubts over the convictions had now been dispelled. It has felt like the sword of Damocles has been hanging over the family all this time. We just didn't know which way it was going to go, he said. Justice has been served. We cannot do any more. They've got what they deserved. I do not think they should be allowed back into society. They should never be let out as far as I'm concerned. Not just for the sake of Carol and Graham, but to protect all of us. In October 2011, Lee Firkin took his case to the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg arguing his right to a fair trial had been breached. His legal team said the jury of non-lawyers could not be expected to understand the finer legal points, particularly the strictly limited relevance of the cell confession. His argument was essentially that the alleged cell confession of his brother Robert should not have been used as evidence against him at his trial. His case was dismissed. In 2015, the status of the case changed once again as the Criminal Cases Review Commission announced that they were reviewing the evidence in the case and they'd found substantive points raised by the defence and said the new evidence was enough to take it back to court. The Commission said it was now considering these points and would make a decision on whether to go ahead and refer the case back to the Court of Appeal by the end of the year. The main reason for this appeared to be what had happened to Witness X, who had played such a key role in the trial. He'd since been sentenced to 40 years in prison for a contract killing. It's easy to see why there was further concern over the safety of the convictions, as the confession it was based on was made by a witness who accepted a £10,000 reward from Crime Watch, and this person is now serving his own life sentence for taking just £1,000 for a contract killing. When he heard this news, the BBC's South West Home Affairs correspondent Simon Hall said the following, When I covered the trial of the Firkins almost seven years ago, It was striking how downbeat senior police officers were in their expectation of securing a conviction. They quietly conceded that the evidence against the brothers was far from compelling and that the witness was a fundamental part of their case. This revelation about his subsequent conviction for the most grievous of crimes has caused significant concern among the investigation team. Whether his testimony should ever have been heard by the jury was long disputed. Now that argument about its reliability, so very central to the case against the Firkins, looks set to be revisited. Carol's brother Nigel again said the family were shocked at news of a further appeal. 
All we've ever wanted is justice for Carol and Graham, and we thought we had that, he said. We are in shock, and I felt physically sick when I first heard. It's like we're living the nightmare all over again. But earlier this year, 2017, the situation has changed again. The Firkins legal team announced that their application to the Criminal Cases Review Commission was now likely to fail. They are now appealing for witnesses to come forward in the hope that new lights can be shone on the murders. Solicitor Jane Hickman said, We keep hearing rumours in the south-west about this case. It seems that many local people remain unconvinced of the Firkin brothers' guilt. We're appealing for any information that could help us. Does anybody know anything in the Fisher's background that could have provoked such an attack? Was anyone else out there with reason to wish them harm? Were all the alibis given to other suspects, and there were quite a few, all truthful? This case is a fascinating one, isn't it? We've heard about the horrific killing of two kind, gentle people, who, as far as we're aware, lived a quiet life, happy of their own company. Their family and friends just want justice for their murderers, and even now, almost 14 years later, they're still in limbo, uncertain what will happen next. What a horrible situation for them, and it must be constantly on their minds. And what of the Firkin brothers? They don't pretend to be angels, but what do you think of the evidence against them for this specific crime? Of course, we haven't sat in court and heard all the evidence, but their supporters can make a really strong argument that their conviction's unsafe, being as it's mainly based on a discredited witness who's been happy to kill someone for a thousand pounds. They suggest that the police were under pressure to get a conviction, and the two brothers fitted the bill as likely suspects. And if that is the case, are the real killers of Carol and Graham Fisher still at large and yet to be brought to justice? As with a number of the other cases we've examined on this podcast, this is certainly a case to monitor in the future. I hope you've enjoyed this edition of the weekly UK True Crime podcast. Please head to iTunes to leave a review or head to Spotify to listen to past episodes. Yep, we've finally made it onto Spotify. Or head to patreon.com forward slash UK True Crime to support the show and help me avoid the technical nightmares of last week. That's all for me for today, so I look forward to speaking with you next week. Cheerio. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line.